Fitness Pro Mentor community. Welcome to another episode. I'm really excited today. We have an incredible guest, someone that I have been actually listening to and reading for almost 15 or 16 years, which is something awesome to say. Uh, I'm really excited because he's got an incredible new book, Mr. Alan Aragon, Flexible Dieting. Alan, how are you doing today, sir? I'm doing great. Thank you so much for having me on, Brandon. It's really great to be here. Alan, honestly, I mean, like I said, no joke. Uh, I'm been a fan for a long time. Uh, I was a meathead, Teen Nationite. I think I learned my rudimentary workout stuff from Teen Nation. I saw you were a contributor there for several years, and I mean, you've gone on to do some really incredible stuff. So, uh, how's your day going so far? It's going great. It, it's just starting. I'm a late. <laughs> I'm a night owl. I'm a vampire, so so this is the kickoff. So yeah, yeah, it's, it's going great so far, man. And this is going to be a good and powerful kickoff. I promise it's going to be well worth your time. It's going to be good. Cool, cool, awesome. So we got something important to talk about. Uh, you've recently just released uh, an incredible new book that several of my students have already dove into, and I just started last night, Flexible Dieting, and really the science-based approach to nutrition. And I'm really excited to learn more about this. What prompted this book, if you don't mind me asking? It was something I needed to get done um, for at least five or 10 years because I wrote my first kind of magnum opus back in 2007, a book called Girth Control, which was a self-published book, which was something that I just did um, upon the suggestion of, of, for those of you who are familiar with folks in the nutrition space, Lyle McDonald, uh, back in 2005, 2006, he, he encouraged me to write that book. And so I just wrote the everything nutrition book, or as um, my colleague, Jamie Hale, will call it the, the super training of, of nutrition books. So um, I wanted to, it needed updating like for a while. <laughs> it was a 15 year old book. And so um, it needed to be done, but I just got wrapped up in life and work and things just don't, things just fall by the wayside. And so my friend, Brett Contreras, he's, he came, he approached me and said, I've got friends at victory belt who want you to write the book on flexible dieting. And so please do that. Otherwise they're going to find some other Yahoo to do it. And it's not going to be as good. <laughs> so <laughs> That's awesome. Fantastic. <laughs> he didn't actually say that verbiage, but that was the message he put in a very tactful way. And so I'm like, all right, this needs to get done. So I'm going to do it. And so the book is titled Flexible Dieting, but you know, you probably went through it and it, it really should be called the Encyclopedia of Non-Clinical Evidence-Based Nutrition. <laughs> so that's, that's what it is in a nutshell. Incredible. Well, I mean, and so I want to dive into that because it's very interesting over the last few years, how flexible dieting, how it's kind of taken on its own soundbite, uh, perspective. It's got its own personality. And I'm really excited and interested to know that why you chose that wording and how we got here. But before we yeah. do, just for the audience, if you don't want me asking, could I get like a little bit of a, an origin story? Like, how did we get here? Mm. <laughs> okay, well, you, you got to go back 30 years, a, a literal 30 years. 1992, I started personal training <clears throat> very bravely, if I may say so myself, because Personal training wasn't uh, like a formal, actual, legit career option until like the early 2000s. And so back in the late 80s and early 90s, when personal training was just becoming to be something that a few of your friends did instead of becoming dietitians or instead of going to medical school, um, that was back in the time that, that, that I started personal training. So I did that from uh, 1992 to 2002 during which time I, I graduated with my nutrition degrees. And then I did full-time nutritional counseling from 2002 to uh, 2012. And so 2012, from 2013 on, I, I really started getting involved with research and publishing the papers uh, and the studies that um, college kids use for, for their, uh, you know, bibliographies and reference lists and stuff like that. So in a nutshell, I've gone from a personal trainer, an in-person, in real life personal trainer, all the way to um, a footnote at the bottom of a paper. So I'm a professional footnote currently. Pretty cool. 
not too many people can say that, which is really, really awesome. It's, it sounds a little depressing, but <laughs> it's better. It's better than it sounds. <laughs> you're, but you're a little bit everywhere, which is really, really powerful. One of our students actually, Gary Warren, uh, asked a question. He just, it was interested. What generated your interest? Like, if you were in the personal training landscape and you're doing exercise, I mean, what generated the the full shift towards nutrition and going down that road to now being a part of a lot of everybody else's stuff at the same time? Well, um, <clears throat> it's a combination of the time spent doing it and uh, where I saw that my strengths were. So some people are genuinely cut out for training like six to eight people a day, five days a week, and they can do it without getting exhausted and getting burnt out and still maintaining uh, the passion and, and, and the motivation to do it. Um, I, I guess I wasn't cut out for it or it was just exhausting. Um, people don't realize <clears throat> that when you train people online, it's a whole different, it's a whole different world. I mean, the, the, the current generation, they, a lot of them starts off training people online. But when you train people in person, you still have that psychological, you know, you're almost like a psychologist. You play that role. You, you play the role of a, a behavior modification expert in addition to the physical side of spotting and, you know, counting reps and encouraging on for some people grabbing the weights and handing it to them, you know, depending on what your style is. Um, you know, Tom Purvis, six steps and all, I, I know that yeah. you remember those. <laughs> <laughs> Absolutely. What's the range of motion? What's the path? What's the goal? Range of motion, path of motion. What, you know. Who is it for? Yeah. yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Who is it for? I love it. I love it. Um, that was such an inside joke. Everyone listening to that, that was an inside joke, but, but you know, <laughs> your audience probably knows the Purvis six steps, right? Oh yeah. I'm sure they do. Um, so it, it honestly, um, it was a function of, like I said, time and me finding out where my strengths were. So after 10 years of, of full-time personal training in person, in gyms and homes and everything like that, uh, I found out that I was just simply better at sitting on my butt and, and talking and counseling people and sort of delegating, <laughs> delegating to them what they need to do. Uh, and so that kicked off my nutritional counseling career uh, where I got to experience a, a little bit more of that, that, that side of, of the fitness field, dietary programming, uh, menu building, uh, thinking of different techniques to help people actually comply with what you tell them to do. Not everybody wants to count grams. Not everybody wants to even care about calories, protein, carbohydrates, and fats. And you get to see how people have just vastly different statuses, vastly different goals uh, vastly different trajectories along the path towards their goals. And so um, I learned a lot during that time period. And then uh, serendipitously in about 2011, I got pulled into the research realm by a gentleman named Brad Schoenfeld, who does a lot of the exercise science studies. And um, he basically uh, said, hey, Alan, I, I would like you to get on a paper with me. And let's let's talk about this anabolic window that you guys are all obsessed about, uh, because it looks like there's some mixed literature in there that that's worth bringing forth um, and getting it past peer review and, and seeing if we can communicate our uh, feelings about the conflict of these things. And I'm like, all right, cool, let's do it. So that was 2013. And then my research career just kind of continued from there. So in addition to uh Counseling, it was a it was a matter of uh, fitting in the research and education side, and it was a perfect fit for me because I enjoy teaching, um, and and I had already been in the field for twenty years. And, and anytime you're in the in doing something for like twenty years, you learn a lot. And if you enjoyed helping people throughout the way, you almost inevitably enjoy helping the coaches learn how to do these things and be effective at their jobs. So. Um, that's kind of how the evolution of, of, of my, of my different, uh, hats that I wore came to be incredible. And I mean, it's very clear that from even just, I was watching a couple of the Instagram lives you did as for the book release and you were fielding questions of all sort. Like it wasn't just in the vein of the book. Like you're very much a giver and an educator with an excellent, you're an excellent communicator, which is just fantastic to see that you've taken this and, and gone all these different directions. Cool. Thank you, sir. 
So with this, you've taken on, you know, a pretty tough subject, I would say, you know, this idea of flexible dieting. And I mean, I, I'm from a body, like a natural bodybuilding background and seeing the nutritional trends back and forth, it's really quite wild. I mean, the, the removal of carbohydrates was a massive thing. And then the, if it fits your macros became a popular thing for a while. Mm -hmm. uh, I mean, remember all these guys eating pop tarts saying they were going to get shredded and be healthy at the same time. And flexible <laughs> dieting, even just those words from a marketing sense have just melt, meant so many different things over the last few years. Mm -hmm. So I was just wondering, I mean, could you just tell us a little bit more about this flexible dieting, how we ended up here and yeah, what some, what someone can learn from this beast? Yeah. Yeah. So the flexible dieting story is, is a kind of a long and winding one. Uh, the, the, the first glimmers of flexible dieting, or at least the foundations that comprise the, the principles showed up in the peer reviewed literature in 1975, but the, uh, verbiage of flexible dieting didn't show up in the literature until the late mid late 1990s. And so, uh, the first instance of, of, of flexible dieting that the term showed up in the, uh, in, in the lay in the non-academic space, probably through Lyle McDonald in whatever year he wrote his flexible dieting book. I don't remember. It was so incredibly long ago. It was like what, 15 years ago or something like that. So flexible dieting, um, as defined in the literature is, a cognitive style of dietary restraint. So the, the two types of dietary restraint there are, there's rigid dietary restraint and there's flexible dieting, flexible dietary restraint. And uh, in the literature, they interchange the word control with restraint. So there's rigid dietary control and flexible dietary control. And a bunch of research was done uh, in terms of what, what are the outcomes associated with flexible versus rigid dietary control. But first defining them, rigid dietary control viewed foods and approaches to dieting as black or white, all or nothing. Um, just a dichotomous type of uh, approach to things. Whereas flexible diet, flexible dietary control did not see foods as good or evil, black, white, or dieting as an all or nothing endeavor. And so this is why it's kind of ironic for people to automatically equate counting grams of macronutrients with the word flexible dieting, <laughs> because it's flexible in the sense of um, the selection of foods that you're allowed to have, the range of foods, but it's rigid in the sense that you are neurotically micromanaging tiny units of measure. So um, it just ended up becoming a convenient thing to call macro counting flexible dieting. And it also became a convenient thing to call the if it fits your macros thing or the IIFYM thing. It became convenient to just conflate that with flexible dieting. But the actual flexible dieting as per the research literature, which is about 20 years deep now, it has, has very little to do with macro counting. It has very little to do with, with that, what people think flexible dieting is now. Incredible. Now, if you don't mind me asking, and this is kind of like a broad audience question, mm -hmm. but when you were writing this book, because you've got so much in here, who were you writing this book for? Like, who is the ideal audience for this book? Okay, so this is something that um, a marketing person has asked me, and and this is unfortunately uh, I'm I'm so bad with marketing down to the fact that I can't even really answer that question. No, no problem. That's not what I'm. Yeah. Um, <laughs> it's like I I wanted my um, my high school kids to be able to read the book and benefit from it. And uh, they're obviously they're they're not in the field. They're still going, through, <laughs> still going through high school, or one one of them just graduated high school yesterday. So, you know, it, it's humiliating when I call him a baby in public. <laughs> um, my baby. Hey, I got a yeah. two and a half year old, and I I get away with it for right now. But I'm gonna ride that train for decades. It's gonna be great. Oh, you have to, you have to. There are definite points where they 
just outright refusal and then you're all okay well that stage is over darn it baby boy get over here oh (laughs) so great it's so great um what at at the graduation ceremony um i I get recognized as you know a public figure by by a fan or a follower on average about once or twice a year and so this was the one or two times a year that this happened and uh i was walking with my 16 year old and i I said, yeah, that's my baby boy right there. And, and like, <laughs> I love, I, I just love the the opportunity to be able to call my baby boy. Oh, so that's awesome. <laughs> um, okay, so uh, back to the question: Who the book is for? My my audience um, tend to be just a highly diverse group of people demographically. I, I looked at my um, my stats in, in my Instagram, which is probably my biggest audience so it's uh 60 men 40 women the biggest audience ranges 18 to 34 believe it or not the young folks okay and uh so it's tough to say man i, I would just call the and the oddest thing like more than half of of my audience or right about half of my audience is not in the fitness industry they're just Folks of all different occupations, um, and and just just life paths. You know, it's just an odd thing. There's, it's so diverse, but all of them maybe share a couple things in common. Number one, they love the idea of of evidence based, which is science and, and experience, sort of a combination. They love the idea of evidence based information versus just hype and speculation and just the wildest greatest. Uh, simplest magic bullet. Um, and also my audience tends to be just uh, really in, into fitness. They're just really smart people who are into fitness. It's just, I don't know how else to, to put it. Honestly, Alan, that's absolutely perfect. And so I got an idea because the reason why I asked that question is I had some like specific archetype in fitness world examples where I was going to ask like, hey, how would this change their day? But maybe we can run through a couple different examples because there are some, you know, academic fitness stereotypes we could run through. And I'd love to know as far as like goals in the fitness in the gym, how this may be able to help someone in their pursuit of exercise, muscle, and overall health. Sure. So if I have, cause our business here, I have a gym we're over top of right now. I got 4,000 square feet downstairs with a bunch of trainers and we work with a bunch of people who are older sensitive demographics. Mm-hmm. And so nutrition landscape is extremely complicated right now. It is confusing. I get nervous entering into it because everyone is telling you their favorite way to eat between the, the fasting and the ketos and all that stuff. Yes. So I have 65 year old grandma downstairs. Mm-hmm. How will the principles from flexible dieting help her day? Everything is goal driven. Everything is, it all hinges on what the person wants to accomplish. And so I would first have to ask, what's her goal? And then knowing what her goal is, then there's always an approach that you can take uh, from a, a diet construction framework um, all the way to how you're going to approach that, that those targets once they're set. So, so yeah, it, it would depend on her goal and depend on what kind of person, person she is psychographically and how, how she approaches diet, what she prefers, how she prefers to approach diet according to the goal. So yeah, I would need to know those two things. What's the goal and what, what are her proclivities as they relate to approaching diet? So and the book, an... the book talks about how to figure that out. Yeah. And so I, I am so sad. I haven't read that part yet, but I would love to dive into that because that's, a, that's such an interesting thing. So let's say we take that same individual and say, it's just general health. She wants to be as healthy as possible. But one of the things that we've definitely seen as trainers mm-hmm. and that you've talked about that personality proclivity to their, what they like, like, do people like that rigid structure of the bodybuilding diet where you eat at this time, eat at this time, eat at this time. And if you miss this thing, go do a hundred pushups, not really. Right. Or you have the flexibility, mm-hmm. um, I mean, could you speak to a little bit of how you do that profiling to identify the best personality for the best diet per se? Sure. Um, The assessment process, it it all begins with their their starting status. Um, If if somebody wants to get healthy and that's their primary thing, then I'm already 
building in some presumptions in into that. Like, for example, if somebody wants to lose weight, well, that's the first thing they'll they'll say. If somebody wants to lose fat or or make performance gains and stuff, that's kind of the first thing they'll say. When somebody wants to get healthy, um, I imagine kind of a wide range of things, but um, the primary thing that first pops into my mind is is diet quality. So how can this individual improve her diet quality to maximize health? <clears throat> and that would basically involve just seeing what what, what is her, what does her existing diet look like? Because diets, you can look at them from the standpoint of having adequate macronutrition and adequate micronutrition. So adequate macronutrition, the, the thing you, you would zero in on is, is she eating too, too many or too few calories? And then you would take a look at, is she eating enough protein? And the too many or too few calories, you wouldn't have to totally stress about that too much because she wants to improve health. She's not saying, hey, I want to lose 20 or 30 pounds. Okay, so it's a different thing. So you're more looking at the diet quality from a macronutrient, micronutrient standpoint. You look at, is she consuming enough protein? Uh, and then, then you kind of move on to, is she covering her bases micronutritionally? So the way that people um, <clears throat> can maximize their probability that they're covering a full range of micronutrition is if they're just doing sort of the, the old fashioned covering the food groups type of thing. And there's an art and a science to um, assessing whether the person is skipping certain food groups that have certain key nutrients that are typically uh, under-consumed anyway in the general public and whether they're putting themselves at any particular risk or not. Um, so like when, like for example, I mean, I mean, if somebody is just cutting out all, all the vegetables from their diet or all the the fruits and vegetables from their diet, or if they're cutting that plus dairy out, then that's a compound issue. Um, if all of the fat, if all of the fat-rich foods they're consuming are just land animal-based, or if they're just hydrogenated vegetable vegetable oil-based um, fats, then you have to make some adjustments there. So you kind of go down the the list of the food groups. And you take a look at what their food selections are, what their typical food selections are. And then you can go about suggesting improvements in those areas. Uh, and so that that's kind of the, the health thing. And, and if you'll notice, I didn't say, well, you're supposed to really scrutinize what time they start eating in the day and what time they stop eating in the day, because that's all secondary and a lot of it's nonsense. Well, I think it's, and that last part, I think you said, I know is like, not as academic per se as some of the other things, but I think it's such an important component because in this world, we accidentally get into eating disorders really quickly and complexes where people are extremely nervous that if I don't do this, this is going to happen and they reprimand themselves as such. And so the flexibility idea that you've even just presented and trying to stereotype, not stereotype, pardon me, profile for the right individual starts to create an opportunity to get around that in a really safe and strong way. Well, yeah. And, and there deluged with all kinds of, of wildly imaginative guidelines and rules that are put forth in the, just in the mass media and even in the academic media, there are highly imaginative ideas of what people need to do to achieve health. Like one of the big ones is um, uh, pe like that people have to go through uh, prolonged fasting phases in order to um, improve or optimize their health. That's not true. Um, uh, that, that people have to eat within a certain time window in the day, or that certain time window has to be either early shifted, usually early shifted, or, or some people will occasionally say it has to be late shifted. None of that's true at all. And so <laughs> it's all just a bunch of speculation and it's all a bunch of extra, extra rules that complicate the process of living a healthy life. And it, it, they not only complicate the process, but they can actually nurture um, pathological um, dietary habits just from a psychological standpoint and how people build a, re a healthy relationship with food or not. 
So that brings up an interesting question that I'd love to ask you is that right now, like and I've mentioned this a few times, but there are so many nutritional trends like the carnivore diet and, mm -hmm. you know, the colloquial culturally appropriate ketogenic diet mm -hmm. and then real ketogenic dieting, if you know what I mean, <laughs> right? Yeah. And there's so many, and then veganism. And I mean, putting aside like personal preferences, like if someone wants to be a vegan, that's fine. Uh, many of these are very extreme. I mean, eating just red meat, um, having 80% diet, dietary healthy quality fats, uh, just not having carbohydrates, calling it keto. I'm mm -hmm. wondering these extremes do you think there's a place for any of them or are they really just unique explorations that have just gone too far some of them are the latter yeah um but other others are legit and if, if i may begin my ramble by by starting with, off with um for example the the carnivore diet and then we talk about uh veganism and everything in between with the carnivore diet, I, I want to give a shout out to Sean Baker. Um, I don't know if any of you guys know who Sean Baker is, uh, but he is the, the the guy who's probably the most uh, visible leader uh, of the carnivore movement. And he is one of the most gentlemanly people I've ever communicated with. <laughs> He's so he's so humble and so soft-spoken and it's such a gentle person. It, it's incredible. Like he's the leader of the carnivore movement. You expect him to go around in like, like a, like a, a fur, uh, you know, like, like a, one of those things, um, whatever Fred Flintstone wore, right. And, <laughs> and carnivore just, teeth, of course. Yeah. Just go around with like a sharpened, like tusk or something. But, um, no, he's, he's just a really, really cool dude. So I want to give a shout out to him. Um, and he, he, his approach to, to the whole carnivore thing is very um, flexible. <laughs> so he presents the carnivore model as something to try if you are experiencing uh, clinical symptoms. Uh, if you're experiencing adverse types of reactions to food, whether you suspect an autoimmune reaction or you suspect intolerances or allergies. And uh, he just puts forth the, uh, well, his observations and they're pretty wide observations that when you eat red meat, you tend to not have a bad reaction. You tend to not activate um, reactions or intolerances or allergies, um, sort of at the at the general level, and of course individuals will vary in this. But just starting with red meat, start there, and then just add stuff if you want to or need to, and, and etc. So, um, so yeah, that I am not opposed to the carnivore diet as a baseline for an elimination diet, where you're trying to investigate what are these offending foods that are igniting my intolerances or, or my, my pre presumed autoimmune response? So I'm, I'm totally cool with it for that. Nice. Cool. Now that what I'm not okay with, with the, with the carnivore diet is the idea that it's some sort of optimal diet for everybody. And it, it may be an optimal diet for those searching for the offending foods in a systematic way. But to just say, hey, this has got to be the, the healthiest way to go that will give me the longest lifespan and health span, I just disagree with that. And there's a lot of folks coming into the carnivore space from the low-carb keto space. So it's almost like the next step up from, from keto, uh, from like an Atkins type of keto where veggies are okay and, and um, low, low, sugar, low carbohydrate ish fruits are okay. And, and stuff like that, you know, where they just kind of cut them out and then just move up to the next step. And like, well, oh, most people don't have to do that. <laughs> the next transition and, uh, is going to be breatharians. They're just going to get rid of the meat and just be living <laughs> off air and that's it. <laughs> right. 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 And so, um, <laughs> so that's where, that's where I disagree with that. And there's a lot of false justifications and a lot of fairy tales that get created uh, within the low carb, high fat, ke the keto community 
Um, and then they, some of them get exacerbated by going carnivore. Like for example, the, the idea that seed oils are bad for you. Uh, there's this whole thing. Oh, don't use seed oils for the downfall of man and all this stuff. And, uh, it's actually the, the, the food vehicle that those seed oils tend to exist in that are the bad thing. Because when you look at the physiological effects of seed oils, uh, whether it be canola oil, or whether it be sesame oil, and, and on down the line, the the data just isn't there to show that they're just these agents of of ill health. It's really the the hyper palatable, highly engineered, ultra processed foods that they're baked into. It's the vehicle that that's causing all the the damage and all the ills of uh, Western society. So, so yeah, there there's a lot of mythology surrounding that. Okay, so. Now, as we go all the way to the other side, to the, the, the vegan community, uh, they're just as, as, as zealous as the carnivores. <laughs> they're just as extreme and just as passionate. And, you know, they're just as crazy as the carnivores. <laughs> but, I mean, a lot of them are good people. A lot of them are brilliant folks. Some of the smartest dudes academically that I personally know are vegans. So that's why they're the biggest pain in the ass to debate with, because they'll get your ass, you know, with, with the PubMeds and they'll, they'll get you with their, with their knowledge. But um, everybody has to accept that there's always a trade-off to cutting foods out, out of the diet. You know, that's just one, you know, a quick example. Um, let's say you cut eggs out of the diet, completely cut egg yolks out of the diet completely. There's a trade-off to that. There's, there's a give and take. You know, you're cutting the cholesterol out, but you're also cutting out a good source of protein. You're cutting out a good source of a bunch, a range of other nutrients that, that benefit health. And so there, there are trade-offs to, to what you're doing. And then when you compare it to the actual evidence, uh, evidence of harm, then you're seeing that, well, you know what? You can still have a, a moderate intake of eggs and, and, and that factor would still be probably like number 100 on the things that are on the top 100 things that are going to take your ass out. So, um, yeah. Yeah. So, so that, that's the, that's my ramble for that. I like the ramble. I like it. It actually brings up a question. I was talking to a good friend of mine who's, I, I believe his background's like a certain inflammatory science and he's a very mm. academic guy. And I, I I'm, I'm going to butcher this, this paraphrase, this thing he told me, and I'd love to know what you think. But he was talking about like, for example, I think it was in the context of ketogenic dieting, like the real mm -hmm. form where you're having a gigantic portion of healthy quality fats, uh, good quality fats. And he talked about like, yes, it can do, it can make you feel great. It potentially could have some effects whatever they may be, but mm -hmm. potentially the conversion, because we still require an amount of actual glucose in our system and the actual conversion from the fats all the way to the other nutrients we may need that are not that conversion, um, that actually may be like a stressful or may not be a very optimal process for long periods of time. Um, if I butchered that question, please bear with me. But I was wondering if you had any thoughts around that. Um, I'm probably going to re-butcher it for you as I interpret, <laughs> but the, the derivation of glucose from non-glucose substrates is, is a highly inoffensive, inoffensive, it's a highly inefficient process and it's a highly, um, energetic process. And so it, it's a, it's a, it's a highly thermic process as well. If you're, if you're getting those, uh, if you're getting glucose from protein. So if your diet is mostly protein and fat and um, your body is basically struggling to adapt to that, um, the body can get it done. It, it can get it done. The thing that it would mainly have negative impacts on are the opportunity cost of cutting out healthy foods that prevent disease, but they happen to be carb-rich foods. That would be number one. Your opportunity cost for eating those foods that prevent chronic diseases like cancer and heart disease. And then number two, it would be the potentially negative impacts on physical performance, exercise performance. For those engaged in activities that are, are really most efficiently and effectively powered by carbohydrate-rich foods. So th those are the two issues I, I have potential issues with just eating a protein and fat diet. 
Yeah, I mean, very subjectively, I tried the the actual ketogenic diet for about a year and a half, several years ago, and had some interesting effects. Definitely, my body composition changed, and I felt you know good in some degree. But I mean, I'm a vigorous exerciser, and my results. I mean, I noticed my strength did not change very much in those 18 months. And I definitely had very little girth change to my body. And as soon as I strategically started adding controlled doses of glucose around and carbohydrates around my sessions and reintroduced it, all those changes went away. <laughs> and I was like, well, I'm not going back. This is just crazy. Yeah. Yeah. And it depends on like, I always say when, when someone asks, so oh, what do you think of the, the ketogenic diet? And what, like, what do you think of that? What, what's your opinion of it? And I'm like, okay, well, depends on the population. It depends on the goal and it depends on the stakes. So the stakes would be the final thing that, that really kind of makes you decide what kind of gambles you want to take. So population, are we talking about the untrained population or the trained population? Uh, and, and what's the goal there? Um, are we talking about the soccer mom or soccer dad who wants to drop 20 to 40 pounds? Are we talking about a, um, a resistance trained young person like, like you and, um, and who's, who's already relatively advanced in their training age. And, uh, so, oh, and what's the stakes? What's at stake here? Is it, is it first place at a national competition or are you just trying to look okay for the family reunion? Or as Paul Carter would say, uh, the apartment complex swimming pool. So what, what are the stakes, man? You know, so you got to ask what's the population and the goal and what are the stakes? So with something like ketogenic dieting, for the general population, they will do great. They'll do wonderful on the on the keto diet. Just cut out anything with carbs and you will lose a lot of weight and you'll lose it quickly. Uh, but the the main issue the with the ketogenic diet at the general population level is that people peter out and cannot comply with it after three to six months. And certainly most of them are done with it at the 12-month mark. So that, that's the issue with ketogenic diets. There's going to be a small subset of people who really take to it and maintain it for years and maybe even permanently. But they're in, in uh, the scant minority of the general population. And that's why you, you can't just say, yeah, keto is the best. Keto is the way to go because, yes, it does work. And yes, it does work freaking wonderfully great. But most people can't sustain it. And, and if you can't sustain something, then – it's kind of a lost cause for, for some people, for the people who cannot sustain. I couldn't agree more. Now, Alan, quickly, anyone who's jumping on live, um, we are interviewing Alan Aragon. He's got his awesome book, Flexible Dieting. And Alan, one of our students just sent me a question. I thought it was really interesting. And he mentioned that you generated your own caloric calculator. And he was asking a little bit more about how that caloric calculator uh, is superior compared to other caloric calculators. Yeah, it's superior in... You made it. And, well, yeah, I made it. <laughs> <laughs> uh, well, I got have to diverge for one second because um, I make this shake that I've named the superior shake. Oh, that's perfect. I've named it the superior shake. And it contains frozen blueberries, um, ice, nonfat milk, Chocolate protein powder, whey, whey pro, your typical chocolate whey protein powder. And um, I actually do put um, a, a scoop or two of, of collagen in there. And then I, I put two tablespoons of, uh, I don't measure it out. I just, you know, pop, pop some of that um, cocoa in there uh, of unsweetened cocoa, about two tablespoons of unsweetened cocoa. And then the milk ranges from like a cup to a cup and a half, depending on how thick you want to make it. I call it the superior shake and, and, um, it's perfect. I, I'm, I, I like to like amuse myself because a lot of the times my life isn't exciting enough. And so like before I hit the, the actual buzz, buzz and sound of the blender, I'm like superior. And then I just go <laughs> boom like that. And then I say it again when I end it. And then when I serve the, when I serve the excess, <laughs> when I serve my wife, like they're her cup of, I'm on, here you go, babe, superior. And so, yeah. So, so when you said superior right now, you said it in the exact tone that <laughs> I say it when I make my superior shake. So, okay. The, the reason why I feel um, my calculator is superior uh, is good. Not just because I made it, but 
It's based on the, it, it got, I got the idea from looking at how the conventional method takes your resting metabolic rate and multiplies it by an activity level to arrive at a, a total calorie target. So uh, resting metabolic rate is pretty easily estimated by taking your body weight in pounds and just adding a dang zero to the end of it. So just multiply your existing body weight by 10 and bam, you're within like, you know, 10% of what most resting metabolic rate calculators will get you at. Of course, there are exceptions on the extreme underweight and extreme overweight and obese ends of this. But generally speaking, resting metabolic rate can be estimated by multiplying your body weight in pounds by 10. Bam, there you go. And then I was looking at these uh, activity factors that usually begin at 1.2 to 1.4 and then go to kind of graduate their way up all the way up to 2.0, 2.2, sometimes up to 2.4. And um, they're very subjective, uh, just kind of giving categories of what your uh, lifestyle might look like, what your non-exercise activities might look like. And they usually meld it in with your, they usually don't mention exercise levels. They just talk about stuff in general with these physical activity categories. And I thought, you know what? Why don't we just get a lot more specific and base the activity factor on not just your uh, hours of formal exercise, which would be a combination of your resistance training and your vigorous cardio. Because, I mean, some people just walk around all day. And, you know, if you were to <laughs> build equations and formulas on that, you would always be over prescribing calories. Uh, so we'll, we'll base the caloric target on your estimated resting metabolic rate multiplied by, um, your, not only your exercise activity, which encompasses resistance training and vigorous cardio, but also your non-exercise activity level. We'll factor that in too. And I was the, per the first person to do this. And I was also the first person to factor in non-exercise activity into, um, a formula. And this was done in 2018 in, in, in my research review when I, uh, when I first released this version of this stuff. And then I basically streamlined this uh, for the calculator that's associated with the book. And then I added a 10% fudge factor at the end of the process for people who um, either tend to overestimate or tend to underestimate their, their caloric intakes. And everything is based on target body weight. So I, once again, um, I was either the first or one of the first folks to discuss how to systematically arrive at um, your target body weight, because it's important when discussing caloric needs, it's important to discuss the caloric needs, uh, the maintenance caloric needs of what the goal, what the goal activity level and what the goal body weight or body composition is. So if somebody is very far from their goal, so somebody is very, very overweight, or even very underweight, it helps a lot to have an idea of how much calories you need to take in at a given activity level at your target body weight or at your goal body weight. Because then you have an idea of what you're working towards. Uh, instead of just, for example, being obese, and then somebody says, all right, you got to get on this 1200 calorie diet, and we'll just run until you burn out, and then we'll take it from there. Uh, Okay, and that's exactly the reason why people who get on programs like that do great for six months and then they, they plateau and then they gain it all back. Uh, it's important to know what your target body weight is at a given activity level so you can have a realistic target. And so that's what's different about um, my methods versus uh, most of the stuff that doesn't work. You know, this brings up, I remember a post of yours you put up and it may have been a year or longer ago because I've been a fan for a while and I remember it. it was kind of a personal post of yours and you actually may have redone it recently and it's coming back to what you were talking about. And then also this book, because I think everybody's always super interested in like, how does the guy use these systems? And in this particular post, you, you talked about how several years ago you were in not a great place and you'd gained some weight back and you were really struggling 
uh, yourself. And then yeah. you made some gigantic life altering shifts. And I mean, I saw a video of mm -hmm. you doing some bicep curls the other day. I mean, you're jacked and shredded now. I mean, you've obviously made Thanks, some, some changes, you. man. Um, so I'm Thank just you. wondering, like, uh, how has this flexible dieting, the research and everything that you know, and mm -hmm. then also your lifestyle and personal dietary preferences all come together to turn into this ripped superior physique now? <laughs> <laughs> yeah. En route to superiority. There we go. <laughs> um, oh, before I get, before I get into that, I, I want to mention that the, the, the programming and number crunching chapter in my book, the, the pain and, and, and arduousness of it is alleviated by an online calculator that basically does everything for you. So uh, another huge thing I'm super proud of about the book is that you don't have to whip out a calculator and w worry about whether you're doing your calculations right. You just literally go to the link in the book that, that takes you to a, a free online calculator and, uh, and does it does the work for you so um shout out to my friend david galvin for developing that calculator based on my formulas okay so um a, a, as far as your question goes about how doing the book and uh, could have i guess amalgamated with with my own personal um lifestyle changes and stuff like that um they it, it is really kind of different and this is a this is an area that deserves a lot more research and stuff. But in my particular case, I had developed a severe drinking problem that hit a crescendo um, in 2017, 2018, uh, to a point where everything blew up in my face professionally and personally. And this was obviously all, all my doing because it was all my drinking. And so... I came to the the harsh realization that this has got to be drastically changed. And so instead of taking the moderation route, I just cut alcohol out completely. And not everybody needs to do that. But then again, not everybody was drinking like an absolute fish like myself. Um, I had developed an alcohol tolerance that was the same as like five dudes. It was just, it was bad. It was not good. And so I've been without a single drink now for almost four years. And what that did, what it showed me, what it did, it, I kind of anti-aged <laughs> for the last four years. It was just pretty phenomenal because um, sleep got better, recovery got better, training got better, uh, consistency got better because I no longer depended on alcohol to give me um, a, a sense of stress release or a sense of escape. Now what I depend on to give me the stress release and sense of escape is just exercise and trying to get more fit. And so I just ended up redirecting my, my OCD routine towards that. And the, uh, the fruits of that effort are considerable considerably better than the drinking routine now not a lot of people have the same type of response to alcohol as myself and other people who have or had a drinking problem um but uh for those who do for those who tend to lock into a routine just be real careful about about drinking because you can lock into a routine and your tolerance builds over time and then you, you need a higher and higher dose to feel the same kind of buzz and then it's going to hit a certain point where the amount required to feel the buzz is far too close to blackout. And then you're, you know, you're waking up in a public bathroom somewhere. So <laughs> I never did that, but yeah, potentially what, what I, what happened with me was worse. I almost would rather have woken up in a public bathroom, but, but yeah, that, that's a, the, the short story of, of, of my habits change there. It was drastic. Well, I appreciate you being open to sharing that. And I mean, if anyone has the tools to have controlled flexibility within food and really anything that goes into your mouth, I mean, it's, it's you for sure. Honestly, I mean, this book is clear evidence of that. I mean, Alan, I think this is an awesome place to kind of put a pin in today. I was just wondering to kind of like wrap things up. I mean, I'm really excited to dive into this thing and I'm probably going to have a, a ton of questions to ask you, 
But um, this book, I mean, what is the, the closing word on this book for everyone that's listening today? The closing word on the book is that it, it is it, it's mistitled. The title is, is mainly a hook to be kind of catchy. Um, that book, I wanted to do a reboot of Girth Control, which was which people have called the super training of um, of nutrition books. And super training was a Mel Sith book. Is that right? Oh yeah, Not we got it over here. It's huge. <laughs> and <laughs> and uh, I just wanted to write a book that covered everything you need to know about nutrition for improving or optimizing body composition and athletic performance. Um, so you're not going to find a lot of clinical uh, content in the book. It's mainly for healthy, pop healthy to high performance populations and, and the general public who's relatively healthy, uh, some overweight, some obese. So it'll definitely apply to them. But um, yeah, I, I really, I wanted to write the end all be all nutrition book for the fitness, for the fitness space. Cause I don't, I don't think it exists. And now I think it does. So. I would agree with you. And I'm honest, honestly, I always, like I said at the beginning, I always get nervous. Like when our clients of very sensitive populations ask us about food and nutrition, I have been unsure of where to recommend people to go because it is so convoluted. Most people are getting information from the Joe Rogan podcast who follows you. That's cool, by the way. But of all that stuff, people hear that they hear interviewers talking about their particular style and their extreme diet and they don't know which way to go. And I think that this book really covers it. I think you've given everyone the foundation to have a healthy lifestyle or be a gym rat and crush it and have giant arms like you. Superior arms even. <laughs> oh, I love it, man. I, yeah, man. I, I, you know, Brandon, I really do appreciate you having me on. And uh, it, it's always such, uh, it really is such an honor to get invited to discuss these these types of topics and discuss the stuff that I create with high level professionals such as yourself who are really making a difference in the industry and really doing good things for the industry. So uh, I really appreciate it, Brandon. You are far too kind and I appreciate every moment of your time. I mean, being able to spend an hour talking to someone that I was been reading about since I was in puberty is absolutely an honor for me. And I've been, I'm pretty old. So, I mean, that's been a while. I mean, you've been doing this a while, but I mean, a young guy like yourself, 35, I mean, you've been contributing to this world for a while. Of course, so. of course. Long time, man. Whew. Alan, Can't wait to hit my forties. I know man. What's going to happen then? <laughs> Arms are going to be huge. Let's go. Let's go. <laughs> How come that doesn't happen, man? We, like every, if, if like progression in the gym was like consistent forever as we got older. I mean, when we were like 80, we'd be like huge arms benching a thousand pounds. It'd be awesome. It'll, you know, I still, I'm still holding out for that. So it can happen. It's going to come. Alan, again, thank you so much for your time. I hope you have you a it. wonderful weekend. Thank you so much guys. And thank you everybody who's uh, tuning in and listening in. Thanks so much for your attention span and, yeah. Thank you, everybody. Everyone, check out Flexible Dieting. It is the be-all and end-all. You're definitely going to want to get it.